You're listening to the Mentors for Military podcast with your hosts, Robert Gowan, Rudy Lindsay, Mike Pritz, and Kat Kalin. Hey everyone, it's Robert here. Glad you guys are tuning in, and I just wanted to tell you about this amazing guest that we have on this week. John Finzel is not just your average badass. I mean, of course, he served as a special forces officer in several different command and staff positions around the world, but he also served on so many different types of staffs. And let me just run down through a few of them. He served on the personal staff of the Secretary of Defense, as a special assistant to the vice president, as a strategic planner for the chief of staff of the Army, and as a White House fellow during the Clinton and Bush administrations. How cool is that? Not to mention, this guy served as a staff director for Tom Ridge and the Homeland Security Council. You ever heard of the Office of Homeland Security? Well, guess what? He was one of the principal architects of that. So what we did is we sat down with him and tried to talk about all kinds of different things, whether it was leadership, Homeland Security, and the development of that, his positions as chief of staff, and then, of course, on his role or his position and stance on the current travel ban. So hope you enjoyed this episode. Love to hear you guys' feedback. Keep it all coming. So grab a seat, relax, sit back, and get ready to enjoy another great episode. Joining me is Mike Pritz and Don Fox. I mean, it doesn't matter whether you want to do a regression analysis, you want to do an ANOVA, you want to do, I mean, whatever you're wanting to do. I don't even know what ANOVA means. All I know is that it's in the books, and I'm looking at their charts, I'm like, my, I've got bar graphs, man. And I can talk about these bar graphs, and I can build tables of bar graphs all day long now in Excel, and I didn't even know how to open Excel when this started. I had a, a junior high school build the initial spreadsheets for me, and I've since learned so much about it. It's just, oh, God. Hey, John, we're John, sitting there. how are you? We're hey, so- how are you guys doing? Good, good. And- We're just shooting the crap trying to understand what's inside Mike's brain here. He's trying to tell oh, us all about a, oh, Mike. a statistics class that he's taking right now. <laughs> yeah, I saw all the books on your desk there, man. You're you writing, what, a, a PhD thesis, or what are you doing? Oh, so they've taken, they've they've scaled it way down. I, I'll, I'll show you the same thing I just showed Robert. Flow, oh yeah, no, I definitely heard that. Yeah, Yeah. so so Mikhail Cheek sent me high rights this in the 90s. I read it years ago. And as I'm studying in my classroom, uh, I, does, it have, I does it have pictures? No pictures. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I, uh, I wanted to see how that would impact kids in my class. And then I ran across this book, which he wrote about 10 years later. Uh-huh. And it, it's about basically how the same thing he studied in athletes and musicians applies to kids as they're transitioning through high school and looking for a career. So I took the same kind of study and I, I scaled it down and I replicated it in my classroom. Oh, uh, wow. Try try to engage students and and what works best is simulation, um, role like, playing you, exercises, uh, and I did some lecture and document dis- discussion. And I tried to get it all together and, and right now I'm crunching numbers and trying to figure it all out and it's just killing me with numbers. You know, with with you, it must be sensory overload for them. You know, I mean, they've never, probably never had anybody like you in their classroom. <laughs> oh, I'm lost. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't believe that. Uh, he's talking about how he sees everything like the Matrix right now. <laughs> There's a lot of similarities, you know, a lot of good parallels. Oh, what did you have to do? Uh, update? I had to reboot the whole computer. I don't know what happened. I, I just kept talking and talking and talking. And, and then I realized the three of you were frozen. I'm like, well, what an idiot. So let me show you what your look was. Some kind of look that looked really distressed. John Cena before, I know. Probably about 3 o'clock in the morning at a, at a phase two board when we were deciding whether or not to keep guys or send them home. Yeah. Those looks are like that. Yeah. Or, 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 or otherwise, are you kidding me? Are we really doing this? 
Oh my God! So how? how- I, went to, I went to Dwayne Wickenheiser's retirement ceremony on Friday, and I, I you probably remember he worked with me out. I call me, me, yeah. Dwayne, and Rob Wheel were all the senior instructors that are under Tony Hinkle, and um, so I told him that I was going to be talking to you today, and he said to tell you hello. Oh yeah, give him give him my very best. He's a great guy. I will. Thirty retired with just over thirty years. His last job, he was the the CSM, CSM at our uh, our forward operating base in Yemen. Is that right? Holy cow. Wow. We're all getting old. You know, all these guys are, are, are out now, you know? And we're all out now, right? It's all it's the young <laughs> crew. Everybody's in hardly, you know? So I, I I feel a little bit disconnected, but it's all good. Yeah. yeah. You, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because actually it's one of the things I wanted to talk to you about. You entered, you retired in 2012, but you entered the Army in 1982. At that time frame, it was part of the all-volunteer force. Of course, I was just a couple years ahead of you, actually. So it was kind of the Cold War era that had kind of fell silent during this period, not too long after. And um, I wanted to talk to you about today's leadership because really a lot of the senior leaders during that time frame were in primary school, when you think about it. You know, they're in their 40s today, and they were in primary school in the Cold War era time frame. And then now, a lot of the people that are on the battlefront and some of the junior non-commissioned officers and junior leaders are actually individuals that were in primary school during 9-11. I first saw, you know, having served during the Cold War, you know, um, I was in Germany. We, You know, I think a lot of us have lived this where, you know, within you got a you got a call. I think they called it in Germany at the time, Larry in advance. You yes, know, yes. You, I was in Fulda Gap, by the way. Uh, oh, right? Yeah, yeah. 11th ACR. Well, so you know the deal. You know, within two hours, you had to be on the border, the yeah. Czech border, the East German border, whatever it might be. And, and um, you know, so you really had a sense of urgency. And, and God help you if you couldn't make it, you know, and, um, you know, or if you failed an inspection or whatever it might be. And, and, uh, and, and so I, I really believe that the leadership during that time, you know, from the, the, the 80s all the way up, um, probably up until 2000, um, you know, actually until the wall fell down, was a different kind. We were all different kind of leaders um, yeah. because that's the way we were taught. It was really, in many respects, kind of the, the end of the old school, if, if you will. Right. And, um, and I really saw um, a, a marked change just in perceptions I think it was Mike when we were in tenth group, and and suddenly I started meeting you know all these young captains um, who had never ever been part of that. And sure. It was a completely different different take on, um, on on problem solving, on taking care of people, on urgency, and um, and and in some respects it was really incumbent upon us to kind of the best we could at least to reteach it. I don't know, Mike. You know what what you think? I, I don't know. I, I would say the same thing. There was another aspect of that same time frame is uh, economically we were doing really well in, in the United States and we lost a lot of those junior leaders. So it was hard to develop them and then retain them in the force. The, the same time frame, the, the Bosnia, Kosovo time frames where I'm, where I'm kind of sticking with. Um, but yeah, it was, it was difficult to keep those lessons and then, and then bring them back in. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I, agree. I would agree. And a matter of fact, Don and I have had a conversation about this multiple times about how the leadership styles have somewhat changed because back then it really was about getting to know your individual soldiers and finding out what makes them. T- I mean, basically, it was all about the preparation for the battle. So you had plenty of time to spend 
on getting to know the individuals, uh, soldiers, their families, everything that makes them tick and everything else. And then, of course, having soldiers time or what we call then non-commissioned officers professional development or officers professional development time. And today, though, they they weren't brought up in that era, you know, those non-commissioned officers and, and young junior officers, because many of the individuals like us that were in that time period, we've gone. And so the war has now kind of changed what would be now soldiers' time. There's yeah. a different aspect of of being social within within the military as well. Um, I, I think that when if you go back to the the, the the '90s, we were talking about there was a lot of preparatory time. There were there in special forces there was a lot of team time, and there was a lot of team party time. Right, we with the families came together. Right, and 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 we were very cohesive. And what we've seen in the last several years of constant rotations back and forth, that that team time happens forward. Uh, there's a lot of cohesiveness and esprit that's built in Iraq and Afghanistan and other places. Um, but when, when the guys come home, they don't have that same cohesiveness. They tend to break out and go their different ways. And, uh, and some of that is, is I think what we see in, in some of the, or the stigma that we have with, with, man, suicides with, with, with guys not coming forward and asking for help when they have traumatic brain injury. Uh, and, and cause the cohesiveness is there only part of the time where it used to be, you know, uh, pre global war on terror, it used to be really there all the time. All the time. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. You know, I'll tell you, I remember right after nine 11, I, I was working at the white house, but then, um, my next assignment, um, in 2002 was, um, out of Camp McCall where, where we were. Um, and it was interesting because I would always talk to these groups uh, uh, who came in, and usually it was a class of anywhere from 150 to 300 Special Forces candidates. And and I would talk for probably about 30 minutes. Um, but it, it, this one time, probably into 2002, suddenly I, I saw, I just had to stop in my tracks because I looked at these guys, and there was something in their eyes that was different. And I couldn't put my finger on it, and then it just hit me. Is that, you know, all these guys had just come back from combat deployments, every single one of them, um, or at least the majority of them. And then I just I just stopped and I said, you know, look, you can learn a lot from us, but I can tell you right now, we're going to learn a lot from you as well. So yeah. this is really a partnership. Yeah. And uh, and that was it, it was kind of a bolt from the blue. And it was just by looking at these guys in the eyes and and it's it's all there. So I, I totally agree um, that there was a transition. And that's one of the things that we've talked about before, Rob, is, you know, the soldiers are very good at doing what they do downrange. But it's that back back in the states or back in the home station is where we've lost that kind of because, like Mike was saying, you kind of go to your and do your own individual thing and you don't stay up with until there's a problem. And then all of a sudden, hey, let's help this guy out when it should be something that you should know them well enough when they're not doing right or when they're when something's not right that's a great point don and i think that's exactly what's what's not happening when we separate and go our our own ways when we come back home and, and i and i get it that you've spent a long time deployed with people and you you want to you want to get away and you want to reconnect with family um but those things that we did i mean when i i learned as a really young junior nco uh, the taking care of soldiers aspect of of getting to know your guys and and when you know them that well and you spend enough time with them, man, you should see when they're starting to to show those those signs of, of having some issues, um, whatever it may be, at home or, or at work or, or something. 
you're there so you can intervene. And if uh, if we choose, I think culturally that's what's happening, at least within special forces, uh, we've chosen to, to take those six-month periods back home as being more, you know, independent for self-maintenance. And uh, I think the force has lost something in that. So you wrote an interesting article because this really goes to the civilian side as well that you've probably experienced since you've been out as well, John. And that is when you wrote that letter in 2012 to Mark uh, Zuckerberg, the open letter to him. <laughs> yeah, I did. I I actually found that. And I'm I, mad at the guy. You know, here's somebody who's like speaking from afar and, and yeah. he's totally disconnected from his this, this large organization. And, you know, and for any of us in uniform – you know, you just, you know, 99% of leadership is being there. That's you know? exactly right, yeah. Right, right. And he wasn't there, you know. <laughs> yeah. So that's why I wrote it. And, and, and not only that, but he didn't understand his marketplace. And I think you were spot on in helping him understand that, okay, you may have a leadership team that has all of these great accolades and education and, and all these types of things that they've done, but they're not your average Joe. They're not the guy that's using or gal that's using Facebook and actually using your product. So you're totally disconnected because you're not out there in the front, not out meeting the people, not, you know... Um, getting engaged with your marketplace and understanding who your consumer really is, right? And well, you know, and, I mean, and it, and it goes. It's I think it's relevant for all levels of leadership. You know, whether you know you're 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 a private or a you know a, a new hire for a corporation, or if you're president of the United States for that matter. You know, I mean, a, a classic example was President Bush when Katrina hit. You know, tilting the wings and looking down. You know. Um, there might have been a reason for that, but, you know, the optics were bad. But really, all people wanted to see was the president of the United States in waders, you know, up to his chest yep. in floodwaters, you yep. know, and, and he would have done fine, you know. Yeah. Well, also, I wanted to get your take on we still don't know the long-term effects of this type of sustained battle. You know, we, we experienced this perhaps back in the days of Vietnam, if you want to count the pre-Tet Offensive and back to 1955, and you count the whole 1955 to 1975 period. But there really aren't a lot of examples in history of where we had individuals engaged in combat for this long and the sustainment of that, not only on the individual makeup of our military, but on the leadership as well and how to manage through that both, you know, during and after. You know, I, I agree, you know, and it, with, with and now, you know, with with the, the whole phenomena of uh, and I guess now it's not a phenomenon at all. It's been happening for, for a long time. And I think that um, a lot of us have experienced the, the, the post-traumatic stress um, following combat, you know, and, uh, you know, and then you get into traumatic brain injuries. Uh, all these things, uh, you know, suddenly seem like they're new. Um, but they're really not. They're they're invisible injuries in many cases um, that everybody's dealing with, and uh, and it's something. It, it, when I say everybody, even the, the senior leadership and the management of, of the Department of Defense, the health community is trying to figure it out. Um, so there's lots of different things that that I, I think today we're dealing with, and and that goes organizationally, but also personally. We've all we've all experienced it to some some extent or another if we're honest with ourselves right yeah most definitely i mean when you start thinking about how long a period this is again i i think what you just described earlier about having leaders that have experienced combat come directly back they have a lot to teach individuals like us having to then come back and assimilate within the, the either the private sector or into a garrison type of command position i agree you know it's uh and now, you know, we've always called it the civil-military gap, right? But, I mean, 
more than anything, I'd say right now what we have is a civil military chasm. And, and because you have these protracted um, wars that everybody's, I mean, the global war on terrorism is the longest war in our nation's history. Yeah. And it's not going to end anytime soon, at least for the foreseeable future. And, and so what are the effects? I mean, you could, um, you, could, you could write theses on these, for God's sake, but I think that you know, part of leadership, the strategic leadership, and also at our level, is to be able to figure out, can we communicate the sacrifices, not only that the warriors put forward, but also that the families endure, and, um, and then you know, what are the right policy objectives as well? And uh, I don't think that as a nation we've really done that very well. And that's you know, what they manifest themselves in. You know, seeing these VA fiascos and and lots of other things, and uh, until we get there, until we kind of figure out holistically how best to approach it, I, I think that we're um, we're going to be fighting this kind of battle. For and, and I, right, and I think some of it is coming back because you know, I've just recently retired. You know, I can see some of the places like going back to Fort Benning, and you know, you're starting to see on the officer side some captains. Mm-hmm. And below, you know, that got the, the right sleeve is, is, is empty. And I used to hear the term from some of the senior leadership was, we're going to get back to soldiering. And I'm thinking, we shouldn't be getting back to it. That's what we should be mm-hmm. doing. And you just you just add something to it. You don't forget the soldier because you're training up for your next appointment. You know, you're still taking care of, you know, the soldiers. And taking care of them is a broad range. It doesn't, it doesn't end. Right. It's an ongoing. I agree with you, Don. You know, it's it's interesting too because you know you know all of us are now retired, but it is in that transition, and you go into the corporate world or you go into the nonprofit world or wherever you happen to land. It's it's really interesting to see um, organizations that really haven't internalized that at all. You know, they aren't looking out after one another. They're all looking out. You know, either for themselves or um, they, it, it just doesn't occur to them. You know that you know the organization could be making so much more money, could be doing yeah. so much better if you had that level of leadership. Yeah. So I totally agree. Well, we used to have the old saying that uh, your people are your greatest asset. You know, and in the private sector, I'm speaking, but there are a lot of leaders that don't understand that component, and they think of assets more that are more important of those that are actually um, creating the widgets. And those things that in their mind are creating the value of the organization, not realizing that it's the people component that's most important out of the whole thing. Yeah, and picking the right team and getting those teams to all work together, not just as individuals, but as, as members of that team. Yeah. Um, and also having a long-term vision, you know, that's all leadership. It's all the things that, that we did, you know, at, uh, you know, whether it was at the squad or team level all the way up to the brigade division level. So it's, uh, it's, it's, and it's, and sometimes I think, my own opinion, I think it's more art than science. You know, I think there's a science to leadership, but I think the vast majority of it's just is really an art form, and um, and we can all get better at it, no matter how old we are or how young we are. What Don said a little bit ago, and um, and I, I, you know, I think he's right. Um, and and I honestly, the picture I got in my head when you, Don, when you said we need to get back to soldiering, uh, that brought back horrors of uh, of of the 80s and 90s when we we weren't doing combat related tasks and we were doing a lot of garrison related tasks and 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 that's what i think of when i think of soldiering and i I remember a conversation when i was working in the pentagon 2010 uh with a couple of other sergeants major at the time who who had a similar opinion that that's the kind of army that we needed to get back to and and i was reflecting man we've got kids who are 
22, 23 years old who are doing great things, making decisions on the tip of the spear, uh, who are operating with, you know, great, great amounts of bandwidth and communication and, and executing things that that the, the army they're talking about, uh, that garrison army can't do right. and, and never really could do. But through experience that they've gained, um, and we trust them to do a lot. We've got the greatest soldiers in the world doing it. And I, I think they're still doing it today. I just my concern goes back to what I said earlier is that when we come home, we're not doing the things that we did before to take care of them. Other things in this, and it's not—it's not a knock on them. It's—it's—it's it's really more of a challenge. But you know, back probably when we all joined, the masses of the people that enlisted were 18, 19. A twenty-one-year-old was considered old joining back in our time. Sure. And and now, I mean, going back to—and I saw this. You know, was what my short time as a company commander in the basic training. You know, some of these guys come in and they are coming in after high school. They're 18, 19 years old. They come in, they go through, they go to the unit, they've made a deployment, maybe two deployments. Now they're a young E5. They're still unmarried, still in the barracks. But now the other soldiers that are coming in behind them, that now they're in charge of, these guys are coming in 38 years old that are married, also they're divorced, they're stepkid. These younger guys don't have the knowledge to to help that guy out. You know, it's it's so they're challenged. You know, that's a that's a trial and error, figuring out on the fly. Yeah, you're right. And and that's where we lose some of those things that you know the the squad leader lives in the barracks because he's a staff sergeant that doesn't rate BAH, and the PFC that's you know 15 years older than him, 25 miles off base. It, there's just different dynamics that go into what they're going, what, what we didn't have that they're dealing with. So what I wonder, Don, is, is, and it's odd for me to come across as I say it, is, is are we now like the post-Vietnam era vets of our time? I think about it. Um, the things that you're saying when, when we were really young, actually before my time, you get into the early eighties, late seventies, uh, some of these guys had real combat experience. And I'm talking, you know, the average amount of time that a, a Vietnam vet spent in combat was 240 days a year. Mm-hmm. Um, that's more than we spent today. That's more than we spent in World War II. Uh, those guys were were really competent at that small unit tactical leadership, keeping guys alive, yeah. uh, dealing with what they were seeing in the jungle and, and with an unconventional uh, enemy. And then coming back, Man, that's a challenge. You're right. Yeah, that's the that's why that's a lot of got out. Aspect that they were never taught to do. And maybe we're dealing with the same thing today. I think we are because I think you make a lot a really good point. I mean, you think back, they were talking then about the people that were actually staying on active duty. The majority of them were Vietnam vets that maybe the military didn't always want to keep, but they reenlisted. That's the sure. that's the that's the that's the NCOs that. Uh, I, I would run into probably as many NCOs that didn't need to be there that were Vietnam vets as those that came back that really wanted to mentor, coach, and train people so that we understood that type of combat situation and we understood the lessons from so that we didn't have to relive it again in the future. And uh, it was like a 50-50 kind of group. I think the same thing is kind of occurring, even though we're still in the war, that maybe, Don, that's what we're seeing, and Mike, we're seeing uh, in that we're seeing this kind of churn that's occurring and the and a lot of the good ones are getting out a lot of the guys that probably shouldn't have should have gotten out are staying in and reenlisting and we're just not seeing that type of uh transition perhaps that we should in, in leadership I'm talking primarily 
you know, like you said, there probably is still there was a conversation, but I think this one because it's still ongoing. It's just not as on a large scale as what it was four years ago. So now you're now these guys are trying to get work on both ends to um, how do you work with you know the dynamics of home when you're home and taking care of all the others, and then going. That's it. There's just more. Dynamics. John, right before you separated from the Army and transitioned out, you were actually an Army planner supporting the Chief of Staff and Vice Chief of Staff of the Army. In these types of key positions, and especially working you know, under the Secretary of the Army, and of course now we have James Mattis as the Secretary of Defense, you know, there is a lot of senior leadership here that certainly understands this type of discussion that we're having and leadership and strategy and trying to make sure that it all stays in moving pieces. What was the experience that you took away from that in working with some of these senior guys? You know, it was just, it was just an interesting time uh, to be there. And one of the things that strikes you is just the sheer uh, both breadth and depth of issues that are being discussed by, uh, by not only the Army Chief of Staff, but all of the Joint Chiefs, because we had to deal as, as planners, we had to deal um, with with all of the JCS. And so you're just as much um, working in the JCS as you're working on the Army staff. So it was a unique assignment. You know, everything from, you know, from from dog handlers to, you know, uh, what, you know, what are the right munitions uh, to use to, to drone operators, to awards. You, it's, it's, it was everything. And in fact, that brought in some, yeah, it was funny to talk to uh, the G3 of the Army at the time, Dan Bolger, wonderful guy. I don't know if you've ever met him, Mike, when you were there in the Pentagon. But, um, you know, he, he uh, we were walking down the E-ring the e one day, and he goes, he goes, you know, I just wish we'd talk about strategy. You know, <laughs> he goes, I don't care about dog teams. I care about strategy. I, talk about, I care about fighting the wars, you know. And, and so even, um, you know, there, there's a, there was definitely a, a level of, of frustration. And I don't think I'm speaking out of turn by mentioning him by name because he's just a, he was a warfighter, you know, and he's somebody that, that truly wanted to make a difference. And he just didn't see it happening there um, uh, within the JCS and also within OD in general. And, and so, but in addition to that, you know, one of the great things about that, that position was that we, you really did have the ear of all of the strategic decision makers. And I can remember when General Dempsey, for that very brief period of time, was the Army Chief of Staff. And I was in uh, the, his office with him, and we were talking about Libya was just about ready to kick off like the next day. And, um, and he was talking to several other uh, general officers, officers that were in the room with him, and then he just turned to me. He goes, "Well, what do you think?" <laughs> you know? And uh, and you're not able to contribute because if if you're a shrinking violet, then it's not going to work. But you know, yeah. of course, we all know that none of us were raised um, within our communities to be shrinking violets. So I, I told him because that's your chance and. Uh, I, I told him about the possibility that there would be proliferation of, of those weapon systems and chemical uh, uh, munitions uh, that would go into you know, automatically go into the Middle East and that they had to be secured. And, um, you know, so he nodded his head. It still happened, but at least he had a chance to tell him about it. So those are just some of the examples. But it, it was it was really fascinating because you got a, a real good perspective of how 
uh, not only your service operated, but how all of the services operated and how they planned and all the preparation that went in to uh, the JCS tank. That's where they all met in that one room. They called it the tank because back in the 50s when um, Joe Omar Bradley was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, he walked in to uh, the room and at the time it was, uh, it was still under maintenance and it had lots of uh, pipes and wires and everything hanging down. He goes, you know, this looks just like a tank. <laughs> <laughs> Ever since then, it was called that. So. I, I love that, John. And I, I, I mean, like you, I love my time that I spent in the Pentagon. And um, I bet you're glad you're out. Oh man, I'm so glad I'm out. <laughs> retirement's fantastic. I tell people that every day. I, but I, you know, and I said I would, I would have stayed in the army as long as they gave me a job that was fun to do, and I, I really, I was really doing a, a good thing. But but my time in the Pentagon, I worked for I didn't know General Bolger. I didn't. I didn't work for two guys. I worked for Ben Hodges, who I think is still the Supreme Allied Commander in Europe, mm-hmm. um, or NATO. Zach, I can't remember. Um, and then John Nicholson, Mick Nicholson, who is the the commander of all forces in Afghanistan right now. And uh, and both of those guys, honestly, would like to take me places because as the sergeant major, as as Hodges used to say, with all those stripes up the sleeve, people look at you and ask for the the real truth. And, uh, and I would never say anything different than the boss would say. I mean, we, we, we're, we're reading the same reports. We're talking about the same things. Um, but, but multiple times, you know, congressmen, senators would ask me, hey, Sergeant Major, what do you think? And I'd tell them. And, and it, you're right. I think if you don't have an opinion when you have a, a seat at the table, um, then you shouldn't be at the table. Right. And, and I think that that opportunity that both of us had, and uh, you obviously in a very much higher role than I did, but I, I, you know, the opportunity that I had in, in the role that I did within uh, the organization looking at Afghanistan and Pakistan, man, it was one of the highlights of my career just to be able to offer my opinion on something like that. Yeah, and you should, you know, I mean, otherwise, I, I don't know how you look at yourself in the mirror at the end of the day, right? Right. No, absolutely. It's an opportunity. And it's and, and quite honestly, uh, you bring a lot to the table just having had all the experiences behind you. So I, I think it's great. Both those guys are wonderful, wonderful leaders. And Don, you had the experience of doing somewhat of the same thing with the Afghanistan government in the work that you were doing there as a liaison in your last assignment. I did have the opportunity to, to do that. And, uh, and there's more lateral instead of top-down working to reporting procedures. So you're working on something that you think is new, when really people over here to the left are doing the same thing. So... You know, then you somebody's got it, who's got it, nobody's responsible for it, and you're starting all over. And every year it seems to be, you know, a, you know the, the new campaign, it's 16 years old, uh, one-year campaigns. With, with uh, Mike, you talked about uh, General Nicholson. One thing I will say with him is that as I was there during that transition with him and, and General Campbell, and it flowed very well with their transition to to uh, continuing with the, with the mission. There was not a, uh, a disrupt at all with that. I think in a lot of cases, you know, when you're a troop on the ground and the bullets are flying, you're wondering, does the top really understand and is somebody really paying attention to what's going on? That gets down to the, the whole di- all the dynamics of, of leadership that, that we were talking about earlier. It's really the responsibility of the strategic leadership and the operational leadership to, to, to communicate that. To uh, to everybody, you know, not only within the theater, but also, you know, back home as well. Because if you're not doing that, that's when things start to fall apart. That's when people start losing um, some of the connectivity, and and it's 
and it's where you start developing that chasm that gets further and further apart. So, I, you know, I, I think there's some antidotes to that. I think it's it's not only we can talk about good leadership all day, but I think there's no substitute for an understanding of history. You look at any place, you know, especially Afghanistan. My gosh, the the history there is fascinating. So why not learn it? Um, and that goes for strategic leaders as well. Sometimes I think that we go to places like this, um, all these garden spots, and and um, and if they really made an effort to learn. I mean, Mike, when we went into the Balkans, um, we we had a whole reading list to read before we went we in. We did, yeah. And, and that was just a foundation, and we learned from there. And uh, so I, I think that in a good understanding, an in-depth understanding of, of the history of the area and of people is pretty critical as well. And then and understanding how the decision-making process operates, um, you know, everything starts with policy. And then after you have a good policy, that's where the, st the strategy underpins it. So, and then you have tactics. So I, that's where I think at any point in there, you can have disconnects. And, um, and that's what I oftentimes see what happens. One of the things, too, not to get too long-winded, that I really believe is that good leaders will also have a very good understanding, a good eye for the transition. Because if you don't understand when things are transitioning, you end up with things like mission creep and mission swing. Yep. And, and that's when you end up with situations like, like Somalia and some of these other um, places that, were, you know, that have really been policy and strategy failures. So, Well, I'm going to kind of switch gear here. A few podcasts ago, or a few podcast episodes ago, when we had Sammy Durrani on, I don't know if you had a chance to listen to that episode or not. As being part of a staff director in the Army where you manage the formation of the Homeland Security Office for the United States, I was wondering what your thoughts might be on the, the current travel ban. I really think that um, the vetting of, of everybody who comes in should be, uh, you should have a pretty good filter. You know, in the, in the past eight years, what's happened is that everybody's been coming in through the back door when, you know, we all want them to come in through the front door. Right. If they come in through the front door, we're, you know, nine times out of ten, we're going to be okay. Now, there's always going to be exceptions. We know that. We need immig immigrants. And, uh, you know, here we have the uh, this massive bubble called the baby boom generation. And, um, and you know, and you have the smaller working population that's supporting us. And, uh, you know, and, and when we're all retired and, and we're collecting Social Security, uh, it's going to be they who are going to be supporting us. And it's not large. It's a, it's a disproportionate uh, share. So I really, I, I just think that you know, there are threats out there. I've seen them up close and personal. I've seen them um, in discussions in the White House Situation Room. And, uh, and, and, I've, and I've also seen my colleagues and myself also stay up all hours of the night obsessing over even one person that was let in um, and uh, or has is you know may may be someplace that where somebody doesn't know and and what are the measures that you're going to take in response so at, at that point you, you have an interagency crisis that um, and and you really have to be able to manage that so all of it's preventable though if you are able to have the right policies um, right at the outset as I was talking about earlier because if you have good policies you can have good strategy don't have good policy the strategy doesn't matter. Yeah, I, I, I'd say, I, I think we said about the same thing. I, um, I, I think, and John, correct me if you're, if, if I'm putting words in around, but I think that the, that the system that we have in place to vet refugees, specific, what I was talking about with refugees, is pretty strict. And, and that, um, at least what I witnessed when I was living in Lebanon, was that a lot of these refugees that were trying to get vetted to come on refugee uh, status in the United States 
uh, were being told no, and they were at the time still Iraqi refugees and and displaced members from uh, from our our operations there. Uh, so what 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 I had seen is that the State Department had a pretty effective method of determining who was and was not safe, um, and that this travel ban kind of shuts all of that off, even though it's it's a, a years long process to get vetted. Is that I mean, did you say that that was you, you thought was working as well? I agree, Mike. I, I think you're, you, you've that that accurately kind of summarizes everything. And you know, it, it becomes kind of a if you start applying zero sum approaches to these, then you end up with the zero sum answers. And for, and and that's really where we are. And and, and these are these are are not simple problems, but um, and they, and they don't have simple solutions. But by the same token, you know, we're we're a nation of immigrants, and uh, you know, but. But let's make sure that whoever we are allowing in truly wants to be a U.S. citizen and um, and is going to succeed as one. Do they have jobs set up? Do they have skills? Uh, and you know, I'll tell you, all it takes is for you just to order order an, an Uber drive. And uh, <laughs> here here in Washington D.C., they're going to be from Eritrea. They're going to be from Ethiopia. They're going to be from Nigeria. They're going to. I just had one yesterday from from India and another one from South Korea. You know, and so they're all immigrants, and they've all. Yeah. Been, for 10, 17 years, they love America, right. and uh, they certainly pose pose no threat whatsoever. And and they they you know for for them Uber is is a great business, sure. and God bless them for doing it. So I um, I'm I'm a big tent guy, but I also want to make sure that it's a strong tent. <laughs> no, I understand, and I, I think Robert something I missed when I talked about it a couple of weeks ago was the economic issue that John just brought up. You know, with the baby boom genera- generation really drawing on Social Security. And and the rest of us that came after them not having, not providing enough, I, I would say, on the employment front, immigrants have historically provided that force. Uh, they provided a lot of the workforce, and I think that's um, that's something that I missed last time when we talked about it. Yeah, I really think also, you know, one of the key things is you just want to make sure whatever population that you're bringing in that they're willing to assimilate, you know, and, you know, absolutely. And I don't want to say, you know, be so ethnocentric to say that, you know, they need to be, you know, assimilate as, you know, within the American culture, because what is the American culture? The American culture is, is a whole conglomeration of melting pot. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, but as long as they see their opportunity and they see an opportunity to kind of live the American dream, so to speak, I I think that everybody wins. Um, But when you cut that off at either end, um, that's when that's when we start having issues. So when you birthed this baby called the Homeland Security Office, did you ever believe that it was going to get to where it is today? Oh, it's I'll, I'll tell you, Robert. It's a it's an interesting question, and uh, I uh, I didn't know we didn't know what to expect. You know, I mean, all the you know nine you know I, I literally went. I was working for the vice president at the time, and we had an energy task force that I was working with. And, and then the next day, I was working in this Homeland Defense Task Force, and then about a week later, 9-11 happened. Oh, wow. Uh, and, and nobody ever, of course, anticipated that. I mean, even the vice president, or Vice President Cheney, I can remember he was being interviewed by CNN. I can't remember which reporter, but he asked him, he said, Mr. Vice President, you know, can you tell us about this Homeland Defense Task Force that you've started up? And the vice president, you know, very eloquently talked about it and described it, and then I I can remember him walking out of that room, and he turned to I think it was Scooter Libby at the time, his chief of staff, and he said, "Can somebody tell me what the hell this?" <laughs> 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 and 
so and so but then it started you know and uh because at that point you know it really wasn't that much of a, a priority but it was something yes obviously somebody thought it was a priority so they created this and then our organization um uh, and there was one other special forces uh, officer in the time his name is joe rosa colonel joe rosick and uh he uh it was him and me and um a couple others and we all, were all working for a four-star admiral wonderful wonderful leader by the name of admiral steve abbott and uh and right after 9-11, uh, Governor Ridge came in, and and then uh, our organization got subsumed into this Office of Homeland Security. And at that point, I mean, it, it was really an interesting time to be in the White House because um, there was no opposition. I mean, every we were all supported, you know, for whatever it took to 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 get results and to to drive policy home. Um, it happened, and uh, and it happened in record time. And, uh, and you couldn't have asked for a better leader than to have Tom Ridge there in charge of it all. Um, and, 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 and the team that he brought in as well, and the team that we all developed soon, we really became kind of a family. And, and it was, uh, so in answer to your question, could I have ever envisioned it? No. Um, and in fact, it was kind of later on, I guess it was May, April and May of 2002, that's when we really started kind of seeing signs that they were going to create its own department, my cabinet right. level department. And, uh, and at that point, that's when I headed off to Camp McCall to, to command the battalion out there. But it was it was hard to leave because it was just a great organization and it was well led as well. Um, so a lot of fun. So I've read on your homepage that the genesis of the Sterling Forest, the book that you've written, came to you while you were on a walk and you saw an elderly man walking his two dogs and you found yes. yourself kind of thinking about life, his challenges, failures, triumphs. And I just got to tell you, that kind of deep thinking is actually what propelled me to go into my own genealogy and maybe even other people, because you begin to think of how the hell did I get here? What what happened in the sequence of events when you start thinking about all the periods over time and how was it that somehow my gene pool survived? So, yeah. and obviously you had somewhat of a similar, not, not, not in that same token, but uh, you had a similar type of deep thought process that led you to writing the Sterling Forest, I guess. Well, it was that, you know, and I, I had written a previous book, and I was thinking about um, the Lazarus Covenant. That was really um, about all of our time um, in, when we were in the Balkans. But then I was going to write a sequel to that. But then I literally had that event come up where I just saw this old man walking his dogs, and, and that, that thought came to me. The other the other piece of it that really kind of propelled it was that we were um, in the Baltic states. Mike, you were there with me, right? In the- I, I was. And I, if you don't mind, I'm going to tell a funny story at the end. But go ahead and finish your thought. Man. <laughs> sure, yeah, no, I, I'm all about that. because, um, But, you know, when we were we were, I think we were in um, in Lithuania at the time and um, and we were coming out. And as you recall, Mike, we you know, we had we were the first ones to go in the Baltics ever. You know, we were the first Americans to go in and. Uh, and so we had carte blanche into the ministries of defense and to, yeah. you know, the vice president's office, the premier's, you know, everybody. And I was coming out of the ministry of defense's office and I turned the corner and there was this uh, old man, I'd say probably 70 some years old. And the entire right side of his face was concave. And I mean, I, I was really surprised that he was able to survive something like that. But, you know, and I didn't know if it was a birth defect. I didn't know. And, but he said, I, and I asked my counterpart, what happened to him? He said, okay, let me tell you, he, he was part of the resistance against both the Nazis and the Soviets. Wow. And he was part of the, the, the occupation with the Soviets um, all the way up into the 60s. And most of 
the uh, resistance in the Baltic states was crushed by you know the late 50s, but some of them were able to survive into the 60s. He was one of them. And he said, and I'll take you over to where he was tortured. And they brought me down to what's today called the, the um, Museum of Genocide Victims, and they call it the KGB Museum for short, in his, his basement. <laughs> wow. And, you know, you walk in there, the uh, the whole place is made for torture. And I've never seen anything like it. The, the, the room, Mike, did you get over there at all to see it? I, I saw one in Bosnia, but not not one in Lithuania. No, this is in Lithuania and in Vilnius, and and uh, they they had uh, one of the rooms was completely padded um, from top to bottom, the floors even, and you look around and, and there's it's covered with blood, dried blood, and uh, and then you walk into another room and and it's concrete in its entirety, and then the 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 floor is like a bowl, but then it comes up in the middle with a mound of concrete in the middle. And they, what they would do is they'd fill that up with water. They would put you, that prisoner, in the center. And um, and then when you fell asleep, you would fall into the water. So it was sleep deprivation. Wow. And, um, and some people died from that. And so he spent, um, I want to say, something like um, three or four years in that. Oh, my God. And, uh, and then some people were actually executed in the courtyard, and they showed you that as well. So those things combined are really kind of what was caused me to write the Sterling Forest because I said, you know, there's a real story here, and um, and why not write about it? And so that's uh, you know after it took about six years to write, but but done, and it's out on the street, so that's good. That's a good thing. <laughs> I'm looking forward to reading that book, John. I really I am. Too. I read the yeah. Lazarus Covenant when we were in the Pentagon together. Um, yeah. Mick Mick Lesniak actually clued yeah. me in that you'd written that book and. And that book took me back to our time in Bosnia. Um, okay. And it just, it, it was like everything, everything that you'd written was just like we were back on the JCO mission. We were out there and, and interacting with the same characters that, uh, that were main characters in the book. And that's going to say, you probably recognized a lot of the characters that were in there, you know? Um, I did. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was fun, you know, I mean, and, and that's ultimately why I wrote it. You know, I, I started writing, um, the first book, just because, you know, we come back from all these places, all these garden spots and people ask you, what was it like? Uh, and we've all tried to describe that, what it's like. And it's, it's very difficult, especially for anybody who hasn't been in a similar place. And so after having failed that miserably, I said, you know, um, I'll just write a book. And I started writing it as, as nonfiction, but then, um, about halfway through, I realized that, you know, the department of defense would never let me publish it. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'll, uh, all this effort for nothing, but what if I turned it into a novel? So that's when I started doing that. And so um, I actually started that whole thing, Mike, when we were when we were in the Balkans. And I picked the Balkans just because you know there's going to be other conflicts and other crises in those areas. Hey, my story was actually about the Balkans. You were talking about the the Baltics with um, Lithuania, oh. Latvia, and Estonia, and, and I, I wasn't there at that time uh, because I was in B Company when you were A Company. We were focused oh, okay. on something else. Um, but my story about the Baltic is, I, you probably don't remember this, but you and I flew to Bosnia together on a C-130. And um, there was just three or four of us when we first came in. And after, I can't remember the guy that you chewed up on on the on the airplane, but somebody you really dug into. Oh, and uh, and I, I, yeah, I thought that was pretty humorous. And then I reached <laughs> into my, my go bag and I pulled out two quarter pounders with cheese because I just come from McDonald's uh, there in, in Germany. And, and you give me this look, and I'm like, what? I'm not going to get a quarter pounder of cheese for a long time. And I had no idea the cuisine in Bosnia was going to be so much better uh, than American fast food. But the chavapi and everything that we had in Bosnia was. 
you gave me this look and you're like, what are you doing, Mike? Yeah. <laughs> I know it's not as funny. It's, it's funny to me. Oh, that's a great story. Oh, that's a that's a great story. Two quarter yeah. pounders with cheese. Love it. John, what's the best way for people to find your books and learn more about you? I well, you know, they're they're on Amazon um, uh, under my name, but uh, but also you can just go to johnfenzel.com and it'll it'll take you to the website and there's more on you know about both of the books on there. But it's just a lot of fun, you know. And I'll tell you one of the one of the great things about you know having written a few books is that um, so far everybody's enjoyed you know both of the stories and. But it's it's really the people that you meet along the way, you know, especially at book signings and you know, and discussions that you have, and you never know who's going to be in an audience. Uh, it, it's really fascinating. I can remember uh, one time I was um, I was at BWI doing a book signing there, and there was uh, this this, this uh, lady walks up. She must have been about four foot eleven, and she looked familiar, but I just couldn't quite place her. And I asked her what she did. She said, you know, I'm, I'm a singer. I said, what do you sing? She said, country music. And she started to look more, more familiar. And I said, who was your mentor? Who, you know, who really was most influential um, in you becoming a country western singer? She was probably my sister. And I, I said, well, is your sister Loretta Lynn? And she said, yes. I said, and I, <laughs> oh my I gosh. <laughs> And, uh, and then right after right after her, this gentleman walks up with a Korean War hat on, and um, and and I, and I said, "Sir, you fought in the Korean War?" And he said, "Yes, I did. I fought in World War II as well." And I want a copy of your book. And I, I said, well, "Sir, I'd, I'd be honored to sign it for you." I said, "Who can I make it out to?" And he said, "My name is William Webster." I said, "Sir, are you the CIA director?" <laughs> William Webster. He goes, "Yep, that's me." <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> So, you never know. You, you never know. Right. <laughs> you know. So. Oh, great stories. Jeez. I, I didn't know who you were going to say when you started talking about country music. I, there could have been a number of people, but the fact that you mentioned her, that's really old school. Yeah, well, we all grew up with, with her singing. You yeah, know. that's right. I didn't. Mike did. I, I didn't uh, grow up. That was way before my time. Uh, again, again, Robert Robert served under Lyndon Johnson. So. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> John, it was great having you on and joining us uh, during this episode. We're, we're going to have to have you back, of course, again. There's... Oh, I'm happy to. Any, any, anytime. I, I, you guys just have my admiration for everything you're doing, and it really makes a big difference, I think, for so many of us. And it also gives us a good touchstone, uh, a touchstone to uh, to look back on, you know, because uh, at the end of the day, um, this is what it's all about, right? Yeah, you know, and I think that there's a, I don't know, maybe a lost art, and we kind of touched on that a little bit in the very beginning. So if there is something that we can impart or share with individuals through our own journey and our conversations like this, then that's what it's all about. Yeah, that's that's really, you know, trying to give back in some way. It is. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's just it's it's great to be with you guys. Don, Mike, Robert. Yeah, ditto. Look no, it's been great talking to you. I wish you could see me like I could see you, but you oh, look you just great, man. Just, 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 don't go change it on me, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I hope we can do this again. Yeah, let's do it. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and at Facebook by searching at Mentors, the number four M-I-L, and please subscribe to our podcast. It's free, and it ensures you're the first to hear our latest podcast show. We have several options depending upon your device, and we're at iTunes, SoundCloud, at Stitcher, and at TuneIn Radio. Hey everyone, Robert here. I love supporting veteran-owned companies, and Mentors for Military recently partnered with Skeleton Optics to offer a 10% discount to our listeners. That's right, 10%. 
These aren't your regular run-of-the-mill sunglasses, by the way. The frames are handcrafted in Italy with Zeiss Vision lenses. Use the code MENTORSFORMIL or MENTORS the number 4 MIL at SkeletonOptics.com and you'll receive your 10% discount automatically at checkout. Hurry up and get on over there to support a veteran-owned company.